Hello, it's Friday, December the 17th. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... Could a sprinkle of snow make it a white Christmas? The Met Office thinks there's actually a chance. The first since 2010. More disaster on cr- and cricket in the ashes down under. The health sector has chaired a G7 meeting which branded the Omicron variant the biggest threat to global public health. The St John Ambulance, they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and they're in the thick of the battle to get those booster jabs up to a million a day, the Prime Minister wants, into our arms. I'll be talking to their Chief Operating Officer. But first, it's one of the biggest humiliations for a governing party in a by-election since the Second World War. The Tories have lost a 23,000 majority in North Shropshire. Is it significant? And if it is, what does this mean for Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister? Well, it was an historic by-election result in North Shropshire. The Liberal Democrats have won the seat. It's the first time in 200 years it's not been under Tory control. A political earthquake, one of the seven biggest by-election upsets since the Second World War. Daisy Cooper is the Lib Dem MP for St Albans and the deputy leader of the Lib Dems. And she has the broadest smile on her face, probably of anyone else in Britain, apart from Helen Morgan, the new MP for North Shropshire. Daisy, um... I suspected there might be an upset, not on this scale, a 34% swing, which is ginormous. Yeah, it absolutely is, isn't it? I mean, we were, um, you know, we could feel that voters were coming over to us uh, several weeks ago. uh, And then as we got closer and closer to polling day, you know, it was one of those moments where we weren't quite sure if we could really believe how it was starting to look. Um, And uh, when the result came through this morning, I have to say it was quite a shock to me as well. Um, and as you said, it's, it really is a watershed moment, I think, in British politics. We, you know, we heard time and time again from people, they just feel like they've been taken for granted. And um, they've just said enough is enough. We're not voting for the Conservatives anymore. It's just, it's just funny, isn't it? Because we had the red wall in the 2019 election where the Conservatives stormed into some of Labour, the Labour Party's northern heartlands dubbed the Red Wall, and again and again people heard, OK, Brexit was a factor, but other people said, we've been taken for granted by the Labour Party for years and years. Are the, are the, are the Conservatives now in trouble in what I would call their blue wall seats because you won in Cheshire and Amersham, another true blue seat, just a few months ago. This is probably one of their safest ever seats, and you've smashed the wall down. That's right. I think they are in trouble. Um, you know, we've talked about the blue wall uh, and, you know, Chesham and Amersham is one kind of seat and North Shropshire is a very different kind of seat. Yeah. There are different ends of the country, different types of people, different kinds of uh, issues as well. But the one thing uh, that we've heard in both of those seats and from many places in between as well is that people really do feel taken for granted. And it's just reached that point and the win overnight, this huge, um, this huge uh, Tory majority that we've managed to overturn has just shown that actually... This is a watershed moment. People have in huge numbers said we are going to switch how we're going to vote. We're not going to vote for them anymore. How much is this, was, a ref, was this a referendum personally on the character and integrity and leadership of Boris Johnson? 
I certainly think that was a large part of it, but it certainly wasn't the main issue. Um, the number one issue that kept coming up on the doorstep time and time again was local health services. Um, ambulances in particular, people had been calling ambulances. There were so many stories, every few houses, somebody who called an ambulance, it had taken ages to get there, somebody had been stuck in the back, uh, they hadn't been able to get into the hospital, people struggling to you know, get appointments, um, even on the phone with GPs. Real, real anger that health services have been really, really driven into the ground by the Tory government. And then we had farmers, of course, as well, who were very angry about the lack of um, subsidy support uh, from the government at, at the moment. And then on top of that, I think any um, frustration that had existed with Boris Johnson was uh, turned into sheer anger uh, because of all the party gate revelations that have come out in the last couple of weeks. Do you think also another factor which helped your campaign was Helen Morgan, the successful candidate? She's local. She's a parish councillor. She was deeply immersed in local health issues and knew all about the issues about the ambulance service. The Tory candidate, um, admirable chap, GP and all the rest. But from Birmingham, what does he know about Aurora constituency like uh, North Shropshire? Well, quite. And actually, it was very telling that a number of people did say that not only did they know Helen and they really liked her and warmed to her, but actually, you know, she did really know the area. You know, there were quite a few gaffes on the Tory side where they didn't, you know, didn't know the difference between, you know, two of the different um, sort of towns or villages. And, you know, somebody yeah. even got the county wrong at one point. Oh, um, and as you say, you know, Helen, you know, not only a local councillor, but she had been distributing parcels during the pandemic um, and, uh, you know, has been campaigning there for a long time. And because she lives there with her family, she uses all the same services as everybody else and really understands the pressures that those public services are under. Congratulations. I, you, you'd expect me to, to be slightly difficult at some point in the conversation. Daisy, of course, it's fantastic she's won, but how long will she hang on for? Because I was just looking back at the Christchurch by-election in 1993 where Diana Maddox captured the seat from the Tories with a 38% swing, even bigger than the swing you've just enjoyed in North Shropshire, and she was out at the next general election. Well, well, let's wait and see, shall we? I mean, you think about the example of Sarah Olney. You know, she obviously uh, won her seat for the Lib Dems in a by-election and then lost it, but then won it back again with an even bigger majority at the next general election. So there are different examples that we can point to. What I can say is that when Liberal Democrats get elected as MPs, we work hard. We are community campaigners. We are community champions at heart. And we work incredibly hard for every single vote. And that will continue between now and the next general election with Helen in North Shropshire. Right, that's Daisy Cooper, who's quite entitled to sound triumphant. She's the Lib Dem MP for St Albans and the deputy leader of the Lib Dems. Thanks for joining us. So it's being seen as one of the biggest political upsets in any by-election since the war. In fact, it's up there with the seven biggest swings against an incumbent government. How significant is this? Does it have any real bearing on the next general election? And what of the Prime Minister? Is this a referendum on his leadership? Joe Twyman is the founder of Delta Poll and joins me now. Joe, um, you and I have talked a lot about this, about by-elections. Uh, 34% swing is enormous. It is. And we have often talked about the fact that by-elections are very unusual in many respects and it's easy to uh, get overexcited about their results. But the scale of this swing and uh, and the fact that such a safe conservative seat was turned around really uh, really is an indication of, uh, of at least part of the difficulty that the, uh, the conservatives are in at the moment and points to a much greater difficulty that may be now gaining momentum for them over the next few months potentially years in the run-up to the next general election. 
And what is that potential difficulty? Is it the character and leadership of the Prime Minister? Uh, that is uh, that is part of it, uh, and that helps feed into certainly the wider problem the Conservatives uh, have experienced over the last few weeks, uh, as so many stories have uh, come in uh, about whether it's Owen Paterson, of course, the previous uh, the previous MP for North Shropshire, whether it's part about Downing Street uh, Downing Street decorations, whether it's about parties in Downing Street. What these all do, their cumulative effect is uh, potentially, and I do stress potentially because these things can change, but the cumulative effect could potentially be to develop a narrative that gains momentum, a story that voters tell themselves and each other about the Conservative Party, that the Conservative Party doesn't play fairly, the Conservative Party does not play by its own rules, and that crucially, the Conservative Party cannot be trusted. If that is a narrative that gains momentum, and if that starts to bed in with the, uh, with the voters, then that's a very difficult thing to shake off. And, uh, and individual by-elections and individual events, actually, in the news don't have a particular impact. But the cumulative effect could be very damaging. It's interesting because just two weeks ago, I think we probably talked about it at the time, Joe, the Conservatives held on in a by-election in Old Bexley and Sidcup quite comfortably. They had 52, 53% of the vote, although uh, the, their, their share of the vote was down. Uh, and that was after the Owen Paterson affair, when we know the Prime Minister backed Owen Paterson, even though there'd been a unanimous report by a select committee saying he'd, he'd broken the rules on financial lobbying. Uh, so is it the Christmas party that really shattered the Conservative vote, the, the, the revelation at the Christmas parties that shattered the Conservative vote in this constituency? Or was it the fact that, of course, Owen Patterson was the MP there in, uh, in Shropshire who had to resign because of the sleaze? Well, my sense, well, well it, it, precisely, my sense is that it's probably the Christmas party, uh, the Downing Street Christmas party that has had the biggest effect. But it's actually a combination of all of these things, a drip feed of, uh, of so much damaging news over the last weeks and months that has, uh, that has actually brought about, uh, brought about this change. Because this, of course, is not a constituency that the Lib Dems would normally be hoping to, uh, hoping to win. This is a constituency that's estimated to have voted leave uh, by around about sort of 60%. Uh, so mm. this is not the sort of middle class remain, uh, remain seat that, uh, that has uh, traditionally been, um, uh, been the target for the Lib Dems as they, as they try and call back. This is, uh, this is a vote very much against the, uh, the government, and that has been driven by this, uh, by this cumulative, uh, cumulative effect. The question is, what can the Conservatives now do to deal with that? Will they be uh, desperate to get over the line and just get to Christmas and hope that people forget about these things? Uh, or will this be potentially wrapped up with issues around the economy and the cost of living uh, and at the same time a deteriorating situation with coronavirus? Because if all of those things add up, the Conservatives could find themselves in a, in a very difficult position that lasts for some time. Just finally, um, when we look into the reads of this result, Joe, at the last general election, the Labour Party was in second place and they fought this seat much harder than people expected. Angela Rayner, the deputy leader, she was up there uh, in the last few days, but they slipped back to third and their share of the vote was down 12%. Now, isn't this the sort of seat Labour should be making progress in? 
Uh, well, uh, there's an argument that the Labour nor the Lib Dems should be making progress in a seat like this, given that nearly two thirds of people voted Conservative. This is a, this is a hardcore um, safe uh, safe seat. I think what has clearly happened here is there has been uh, tactical anti uh, anti government voting, of which the Lib Dems have been the greatest benefactors. And it's not a surprise, given the amount of uh, amount of resources they've devoted on the ground to knocking on uh, uh, to knocking on doors. That there's really still no, uh, particularly in a by-election, there's no substitute for actually uh, uh, for actually wearing down some shoe leather, leather and getting out there, and that's where the Lib Dems have done well. So I, I, I think it's easy to uh, uh, to, to around and say Labour should have done better, but uh, but I think ultimately it's the Conservatives that really should have done better. Uh, if there's another by-election like this, do you think the concert you, you you and I have been watching these sort of things for years, Joe? Do you think? Uh, Conservatives, any leader can survive another by-election like this? Well, it's worth remembering that from 1989 uh, to 1997, the Conservative government didn't win a single by-election in, uh, in all that time. And it was very much the... Uh, the the way things uh, the way things went, you just, if you were the government, you just didn't uh, you just didn't win. And um, uh, and John Major, uh, despite everything that happened, survived throughout uh, throughout much of that uh, much of that time. This is obviously a very different situation. Uh, but I think that uh, I think that in order for uh, in order for Boris Johnson to be replaced, there needs to be uh, there needs to be a motive. And I think this goes part of the way to do that. But there also needs to be a replacement. And I don't think there's an obvious person uh, to uh, uh, to take his place who can appeal to the same types of people in the same places in the same way that's joe twyman from delta poll thanks for joining us so the health secretary sajid javid has chaired a g7 meeting which branded the omicron variant the biggest current threat to global public health corona cases fueled by omicron's transmissibility are thought to be doubling daily we've got plan b but are we doing enough to slow the spread of the new variant keith neal is professor of epidemiology and infectious diseases at the university of nottingham and he joins me now professor um uh, politicians can never quite agree on what we should be doing and there's always going to be disagreement among scientists but do you think largely they're doing enough or nothing like enough i think there's a number of things that i would choose to do differently but that doesn't necessarily make it always right I think I would have more social distancing and more working from home much earlier on anyway. <clears throat> and I think the other thing is we need vaccine passports. And the vaccine passports in Europe consist of being vaccinated and or having had COVID recently. They don't bother with lateral flow device tests. They're not 100% accurate, but they're better than nothing. So ideally, we would have vaccine passports, which included both vaccine and a lateral flow device test, not or. Now, um, the currently, that would, of course, mean up to 4 million people, I think, so far haven't had a single vaccine. They would obviously be furious about that. And um, I, I'm rather with you professor i think everybody should be vaccinated but um where would they have to show this vaccine passport in 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 if your if your proposals were taken on board if it, is it before they go into any public place public transport everywhere i think it does depend a bit on the event and how long you're likely right. to be on it for certainly long distance train travel because it's an 
option, shorter bus journeys, it's going to be more difficult. I think the difficulty is if you're getting on a bus quickly, you might have to show your pass. It's got to be read to make sure it is who you, it is who you are. If you're on a long train journey where the, the guard is checking your tickets, it could be done at the same time. I went to the Open Golf Tournament as a COVID advisor, and when I went in, they checked my COVID pass as every time I went through the entrance. Um, you were there all day. I think you can do this when you're going into... I mean, nightclubs have said, well, we can't check COVID passports, which I found rather strange because surely they check that people are over 18. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And it's interesting... It's Professor, a legal I'm, obligation. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting, I don't know if you're aware, but Wales has announced that nightclubs are to close and offices and shops will be socially distanced after Christmas. So here again, we've got the different parts of the United Kingdom behaving differently when it's exactly the same variant. I think that's, to be honest, I think the Wales and Scotland have always done things slightly differently because of nationalist politics. My comment on the Welsh attitude, if they think they need to close the nightclubs and do distancing, well, what we have learned from this pandemic, you need to go hard and you need to go early. Waiting a couple of weeks doesn't make sense. And what of um, this weekend, there'll be football matches up and down the country, Premier League, uh, Championship League, tens of thousands of people at these matches, Professor. Are you comfortable that they're still going ahead? I think I'm less worried about outside activities because you're outside and generally the crowd is sitting down and you're breathing out onto the back of somebody who is in front of you and you tend not to breathe in the stuff that's gone on your back. Actually, I think the bigger risk is how you get to the game, whether you're on public transport, trains for long journey, car sharing. That's where the biggest risk in sporting activities we've worked. There's another one that was brought to my attention yesterday, and that's the darts championship, which... which was large numbers of people from, I suspect, slightly worse to wear for alcohol, won't be wearing masks. And I think that's a COVID spreading event on steroids. And I think (laughs) I would stop that sort of thing. I think outside we need to carry on some form of reasonable life. And lots of people get pleasure from going to the football. It's how I think it's how you get there. That's the risk. Where I live in Derby, people used to walk to the football ground in large numbers. That's a pretty safe activity. What of the booster jab, Professor? The government is obviously pinning an awful lot of um, hope on the booster jab. 750,000 were administered yesterday. They want to reach a million a day uh, by the end of the year. How important is it to you that this booster jab is rollout is a success? Do you, do you place as much store on the booster jab? I think vaccines have always been the way out of this at the moment until the virus decides to mutate and become very mild and we can't actually control that it's we may have to keep giving flu vaccines in the same way we give annual flu vaccine flu vaccines so it's not a logistic impossibility if the virus mutates to to escape the vaccine and it's showing no signs that it's really escaped we know we can change the vaccine and Moderna said they've already started changing their vaccine in for experimental purposes about two, three weeks ago. And they need a hundred day lag. So we could have a new vaccine if we needed it by January, February for those most at risk of the disease.
encouraging. I was going to ask you just finally, how concerned are you that Christmas, because it's going to be a pretty normal, normal-ish Christmas for most families, it seems, how worried are you that that's going to lead to another spike? Well, it could lead to another spike, but then people may not be going to work and mixing in other places. It's not a zero-sum game. My advice would be that if you're meeting up, is to have less, smaller number of households meeting up. So two households of five meeting is less dangerous than five households of two people mixing up, although you think that's both ten people. The other thing is if you do lateral flow device tests of everybody in the house before they meet up, that further reduces the risk. Very interesting. That's Keith Neal. He's Professor of Epidemiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Nottingham. And thanks so much for joining us. So record numbers of vaccination and booster dose are being administered across the UK following the pledge from number 10 to jab one million Brits a day. I think we managed three quarters of a million on Thursday. St John Ambulance has been a key provider of volunteers in the push to get Britain vaccinated throughout the pandemic. Richard Lee is a paramedic and he's the Chief Operating Officer at St John Ambulance and he joins me now. Richard, how many of your people um, are involved in this big push to get the booster jabs into everybody? Here at St John Ambulance, we recruited and trained 26,000 volunteer vaccinators uh, in early 2020. And uh, since uh, beginning our vaccination efforts in uh, in January last year, we've administered around uh, 800,000 hours of volunteering in centres across the country, around 400 centres providing initial jabs. And then, of course, uh, more recently, the COVID um, boosters. Um, Today, we're in around 300 centres and we've got about 6,500 volunteers actively engaged this week uh, across the nation. Pretty extraordinary effort, isn't it? And um, uh, I mean, what are they doing? Are they doing a full day or do they do half? How how does it divvy up, uh, Richard? So most of our people do um, a four or six hour shift. Um, You can imagine that uh, vaccinating people one after another, after another, after another is actually quite a a mentally tough task. You know, you're repeating the same thing over and over and over and again, and you're dealing with the the, the public who in some cases are quite worried or in other cases are very keen. Um, So it's it's quite quite an intense role, especially um, when you compare it to other volunteering roles that are available. So uh, we're rotating our people through four or six hour shifts. Um, Some centres are working longer hours um, and uh, not all of our people are vaccinating. We have some folk in the centres who are there as clinical support workers, so getting things ready for vaccinators to to give the jabs. And we have some people there that we call advocates, and they're there to provide moral support or some one-to-one support to people who need that one-to-one support to get through the process. So maybe somebody that's visually impaired or somebody who's just really frightened. You know, they really want the jab, but they're also really frightened. That's really important, isn't it? Because we know there's been too much resistance to COVID jabs in the country. and We're never quite sure what what the problems are. Um, So I guess if people are uh, nervous when they arrive, the work of your volunteers to try to reassure them is, is really, really very important. Absolutely. You know, here at St John, we want everybody who can to be vaccinated it's it's the way forward it's the way out of uh, this uh, once in all of our lifetimes uh, event this pandemic that's come along this is a serious disease uh, it's not over yet and uh, 
Our message to everybody is please uh, take up the offer of, of your booster. If you haven't been vaccinated, it's not too late. Um, and, you know, changing your mind is okay. If you didn't want it to start with, but you want it now, that's okay. Come along and we'd be delighted alongside our NHS colleagues to make sure that you get it. Talking to your organisation, talk to you, makes me feel rather old, uh, Richard, because um, uh, I, my, I can remember my sisters being part of what was then known as the St John's Ambulance Brigade. Uh, how long has your organisation, your charity, been in existence? So the, the Knights of St John, the Hospitaller Knights, um, we can trace our, our lineage back to the 10th century. Uh, the Knights of St John, the Hospitallers, providing medical support for the injured uh, during the cr- Crusades. More, more recently, um, the organisation St John Ambulance, formerly St John Ambulance Brigade, we can trace our history back to the mid-1800s. So lots of heavy industry, railways, steelworks, coal mines, dangerous places, no formal health care in those days. You know, you couldn't dial 999 and, and get an yeah, ambulance right. to the scene. So, um, first aid squads um, under the banner of St John Ambulance um, in collieries and railway yards and steelworks and other places. And, you know, if you look back at some of the mining disasters from the late 1800s, you know, terrible scenes, but lots of people uh, in St John Ambulance uniform there tending to the sick and injured. And, of course, we should remember that it was up until 1974 Um, St John Ambulance provided the ambulance service on behalf of local councils right across the country. It was was only in 1974, which isn't that long ago, um, that um, the NHS took formal responsibility for providing an ambulance service. So um, a a, a very proud history of around 150 years for St John Ambulance as a first aid charity, but right back to the Crusades for the hospital and nights, the first of the battlefield medics, if you like. I think you've got a great history and it's great that you're showing how, how you move with the times that you're there in the thick of probably the biggest public health battle this country's had in a, in a century. Just finally, Richard, how many members do you have these days? So um, St John Ambulance back in 2019, which was our last normal year, we yeah. had around 10,000 10, adult volunteers who went out providing first aid care in communities we've got about 9,000 young people our badger and cadets units um, centered on preparing the next generation of NHS health professionals Um, but obviously now with the expanded recruitment we've had during vaccinator our operational strength is around 30,000 people and we're working hard to make sure that as many of the folk who joined us as vaccination volunteers last year are able to um, progress now and transfer into other more core roles within St John to continue their volunteering journey with us across the full range of activities that uh, this wonderful organisation provides. It certainly is a wonderful organisation and it's a great privilege for me to talk to you. That's Richard Lee, a paramedic who is the Chief Operating Officer at St John Ambulance. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatt was here with the latest sports news and I can see in your face Matt it's not good of the ashes is it? Is it going even more badly wrong yeah you can barely see my face because my head is in my hands it is um it's going from from bad to worse and it's heading only one way and that is horrible it is uh, this tour is turning into another tour from hell for england um on the ashes front um day two was almost as bad as day one where england uh, where australia racked up 220 to two overnight then day two they just really rubbed england's noses into the dirt uh, they got up to 470 before they declared, so they were only seven wicket down. 
they made England's bowlers toil in the 37 degree heat of Adelaide um, and started really having some fun at the end of their innings where they hit 80 runs off the last 10 overs of their innings, um, smashing Wokes and Stokes all around the park. Um, England, you know, dropping catches, throwing overthrows. Um, and then Australia declared giving England um, a few overs to bat until the close in, in ideal bowling conditions. Obviously, this is a day-night test. So just as the lights came on and the ball was more likely to move around a bit, the Aussies declared, sent England's woeful openers into bat uh, to see if England could bat out the last few overs and at least go into uh, into the next day with the hope of, you know, maybe batting themselves and getting up to around 500 and maybe scraping a draw out of it. But, of course, Rory Burns is in terrible touch at the moment. He backed up his two failures in the first test with another failure, and Hamid has gone as well, so England go into the next day. Yet again, with all the pressure on Joe Root, he's at the crease already. England are 17 to 2, go, uh, 17 for 2 going into the third day. So, yeah, pretty ugly stuff. We could, probably, we could easily lose by an innings in a bit. Yeah, comfortably. I mean... Th- Spin will play a part, we think, in this test match. England haven't played a spinner. They're playing Joe Root as their only spinner. Um, so that could come back to, to bite England. And Nathan Lyon, who's not arguably the world's best spinner at the moment, um, for Australia could, could well run through England quite quickly. That's if the seamers haven't already done the damage beforehand. And England have got the, the, the massive... Well, you, you would have thought it was an advantage pre-test of the fact that two of Australia's best seam bowlers aren't playing because of um, one's injured, Hazelwood, and the other one had a, a COVID contact, so he's been ruled out, uh, Cummins, the captain, yet still they're making mincemeat of us. So it's just, um, yeah, it's uh, it's just, it's horrific. All right, and um, uh, football, Chelsea, who a lot of people predicted would have great glory this year, didn't they win the European Championship last year? Did they? They did, didn't they? they did. They and did. Looked, yeah, and looked good. Looked got a new manager, they've got a new manager who had a pretty good start, but they wobbled again last night, did they? It's just strange, yeah, they've, they've, um, uh, yeah, since Thomas Tuchel has been in there, uh, when he took over midway through last season, they, they climbed up the league, they got, you know, they got into the top four and they won the Champions League, as you say. And then they started this season on fire. They bought Romelu Lukaku, who everyone thought was the missing piece in their team, the striker that they'd been missing, um, who, um, who started well and got a few early goals in the season. And they won quite comfortably at the start of the season. They were top of the league and everyone, you know, it was almost like all bets are off. You know, this is Chelsea's title to lose. Now, obviously, City and Liverpool have been there or thereabouts, so maybe that was a little premature. But we certainly thought Chelsea were going to um, were going to be right up there, setting the pace. But they're just having a little wobble at the moment. They held last night at home against Everton, who haven't been in good form. That backs up a, uh, a defeat um, to West, a recent defeat to West Ham. Um, which came out of nowhere, and it just feels like you know they're. I mean, look, they're not out of the race by any stretch. There's a long way to go, and they're only um, they're only sort of four points off the top, uh, four or five points off the top, and so they're in third place. It's not a disaster, but it's just interesting that how you know these things can change, um, and from being uh, the sort of team to beat, they now look like they're slightly playing catch up. Um, a few injuries. Um, Lukaku's back now from his injury but isn't scoring goals and so that problem may resurface so yeah just one to watch Alright that's Matt Gatwood Deputy Sports Editor at the Daily Mail thanks for joining us Could a sprinkle of snow make this a white Christmas? The Met Office has suggested there's at least a chance of widespread snow this Christmas for the first time since 2010 
But we want a more accurate forecast, which is why we've asked meteorologist Sarah Thornton, director at Weather Trending, onto the podcast. Sarah, what's your hunch or what's your tip? We're only a week away now. It's a bit colder where I am. Uh, I don't know if it's colder where you are. Are we heading for a white Christmas? Mm, well, I'll tell you, it's looking a little bit more tasty than it has done in recent years, yeah. I think at Weather Trending, we totally agree with the Met Officer's assessment of this is looking a bit more hopeful than other years. That's not to say it's a nail uncertainty. Of course, what we tend to do at this range, because it's still more than a week out, is we look at the different various, and there are lots of them out there, forecast models coming out from all around the world and uh, seeing what kind of solutions they're coming up with. And that's why, because more and more of them are starting to just see really something much colder by the end of next week. And with that, the possibility of some precipitation coming in and hitting the cold air and turning to sleet or snow. That's why people are getting exciting, uh, excited. More than a flurry, more of a blizzard of excitement yesterday because at one point, one of the charts yesterday had snow across sort of the Midlands and parts of southern England and the southeast. And it was like, oh, I'm afraid that's backed off. And there is no clear consensus except to say that at the moment it has been pretty mild the last few days. We're losing that mile down to the start of next week and it turns colder as we head towards Christmas Day. And what is the definition of a white Christmas, Sarah? Is, does snow have to fall on a certain place or in a certain, or a certain depth or level? Ah, well, now you're getting super technical. And if you're a betting man or if you're listeners or betting people, this is where it all gets super tricky. So it used to be, of course, in days of yore that you would have to see a flake falling over the London Weather Centre. But then they closed that centre. So then it became the strict definition is a flake of snow falling somewhere in the UK in the 24-hour period over the 25th of December. So that's kind of relatively easy to do, and it means that, you know, in a rough sort of measure, you'd say at least more than half, up to two-thirds of Christmases, you might consider to be a white Christmas. But that's not really what people want. You know, what people really want is to wake up to proper snow falling or having fallen. And when you kind of wake up to snow on the ground, we call that a snowy Christmas rather than a white Christmas because, yeah, it's not actually coming from the sky when it's already fallen on the ground. Uh, the last widespread white Christmas we had, of course, as you say, was 2010. Uh, now you can also make bets for things like, oh, will it snow at Coronation Street or at Old Trafford or somewhere like that? So if you're a betting person, you can make your own definition if the bet makers will have it uh, as to what you consider to be a white Christmas. But, you know, strict definition of it, yeah, you're quite likely to see one. Of course, I've got to just say this, with climate change being what it is, and with where we sit in the UK, we're always on a fair knife edge when it comes to snow anyway, because our temperatures are largely hovering around sort of freezing quite a bit of the time through December. And because of that, it means that the chances of seeing a white Christmas are, I'm afraid, becoming rarer and more, uh, less likely, I should say, as we're going through, because obviously we know that the planet is warming and that our overall mean temperature is just sort of creeping up. And that's enough to keep rain as rain and sleet, uh, you know, as that kind of, you know, you get that sort of really messy, wintry mix sometimes where you're like, is it raining, is it sleeping, is it snowing, it's gone back to sleep. We kind of quite often hover around there. So at the moment, for this year, We've got some colder air. It looks like there could be an area of low pressure bumping into the cold air that would start to snow and maybe turn back to sleep. But the positioning, we don't know yet. I think there will be a white Christmas somewhere. Very interesting. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you again about that. That's Sarah Thornton, meteorologist and director at Weather Trending. Thanks for joining us. 
That's all we've got time for today for the latest from the Daily Mail. Download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.